Not every job in media is about creating content. There are loads of jobs that involve getting that content in front of an audience. Acquisitions, distribution, programming. In this episode of How I Got This Gig, our guest is Brian Lau, the former Senior Vice President of Content and Communications for Fox Networks Group in Asia. It's an interesting one, so stick around. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Dean Rainey, and we've got a special treat for you. My video twin, Berman, is over in Asia, where he's working on a couple of TV commercials. And while he's there, he's also been interviewing people in the television industry. So, over the next couple of episodes, we're going to be featuring those interviews. Hey, this episode of How I Got This Gig is brought to you by CanadaVideoCompanies.ca. If you'd like to land more video production gigs, then just head over to CanadaVideoCompanies.ca and sign up for a free listing. I did it. I've got my production company, Rainy Media, listed there, and I'm expecting the clients to start rolling in right away. Plus, I think it's an easy way for me to connect with other production companies. Like if I'm filming in another part of Canada and I need more crew or resources, I'm pretty sure I can reach out to some of the other production companies there and access them as a resource. It's great. And it's all at canadavideocompanies.ca. We're also sponsored by Videotwins.com. That's our website dedicated to helping you make better videos. And we just released our annual equipment toolkit, so you're going to want to check out all the toys, uh, or I mean gear, that we use on our productions. That's Videotwins.com. Okay, so back to the show. Berman is over in Asia. Let's check in with him. So what are you up to over in Hong Kong, Berman? I am here trying to pretend I know what I'm doing as usual. <laughs> I'm actually here on what? I'm actually uh, producing uh, well here in Hong Kong I'm producing one commercial for IBM. Actually I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that right now until until the commercial airs, but yeah, I'm producing a commercial for IBM. It's a pretty big shoot. It's a pretty big shoot. We we have a uh, a very good uh, U.S. team, a director's team coming over from the U.S., so a couple producers, the director, the assistant, uh, art director, and a cinematographer coming over from New York to uh, to shoot this. And then on the Hong Kong side, we have, well, actually from the Shanghai side, because they hired the Shanghai uh, production house to kind of oversee this thing. Um, they hired someone from Hong Kong and a huge crew. We're talking about, like, art direction wardrobe locations and everything all that adding up to uh uh you're looking at like maybe 20 to 30 uh crew members and then there's me coming in from canada going all right guys let's do this and what's your role generally been uh really for this one i'm overseeing the budget uh making sure that you know money if there's overages which usually there are uh they're spent within reason they're like it's not just uh pointless stuff which I don't think I've been doing a very good job, <laughs> but it's one of those, <laughs> really? yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of commercials I've done in the past, in fact, every commercial I've done in the past, you have to have storyboards that are approved by clients, uh, the art direction, everything's been approved by client. This one is kind of on the fly, like the, the creative team, uh, the, you know, the directing team came in and then they started looking at locations and then they started coming up with the, uh, the cons, not well, the concept was there, but in terms of the scenes and the sequences, they didn't derive that until like two days before the actual shoot date. And that never happens. So because it was like everything was changing as they're looking at the location for the first time, everything that we spent in preparation was, you know, down the toilet and we had to start from scratch. So there was like a lot of, uh, you know, going over the budget and stuff like that. Wow, which is surprising because you think such a big production and a commercial brand that they'd have to sign off on everything and have it all planned before you even hopped on a plane. Absolutely. I mean, this is a lot of money we're talking about. But from what I've heard, you know, asking the, the production team from the States and also the agency, you know, asking them how, how does this all work? Like, how does, how does the client even approve something to move forward like this when they have no storyboards, nothing to look at? And it boils down to just the reputation and the trust they have in the uh, the director and also the team they've put together. Wow, that's that's incredible trust. It's a new direction, and and you know it's funny because you and I we've been doing stuff like that 
back in Nat Geo, back in Fox, where we've been thrown into a situation where we go to a location, we scout it, and that's when we truly understand what we're trying to shoot. We only have like an idea, vague right. idea, and then on that the first day we look at all the location, we decide on whatever it is that night. The next day we shoot that commercial, and that's it, right? So we've been doing it, you know, in that sense. Now to see it in a bigger scale. To be honest with you, it's not that much more difference, except you have a lot more toys and a lot more experienced people to support you. <laughs> right, right. So you think the final product's going to be pretty good? I think so. I think so. The team uh, coming to Hong Kong who shot this, they were in Berlin before all this. In fact, they were in New York shooting, and then oh. they were in Berlin uh, You know, previous the previous weeks before coming into Hong Kong uh, to shoot this campaign. The New York one was for one separate commercial. And then the uh, Berlin one in Hong Kong are to get grouped together in, in the second commercial. And uh, I was lucky enough to see what they... I mean, they shot it the week before they came to Hong Kong. Uh, and by the time we started shooting, they already had a rough cut that came from New York. And I had a chance to look at it. It looked fantastic, yeah. Cool. And I understand you've been doing some interviews while you've been over there? I have. I've been meeting some very interesting people or and some old friends as well. I got a couple interviews coming out. One is with a good friend of ours. At the time when when we were at Fox, or even just recently, he was the uh, vice president of Fox Movies, uh, managing all all of uh, the movies in in all of Asia. You know what was broadcasted out there. Uh, great guy. All the movie channels, yeah. Yeah, all the movie channels. So I had a chance to meet up with him and talk about his journey. Uh, from that's Brian uh, Lau. Brian Lau, yes, that's it. Brian Lau. I mean, he's from. He's he's originally from uh, California. Yeah, that's where he's from. So you know, finding himself in Asia, just like how you and I found her. He's still here, actually. You know, so he's he's got an inter- interesting story and and his background. Yeah, because I think he started as an engineer, right? Like an environmental engineer, and then woo. Now he's what I would probably define as a suit or an executive, yes. right? Like, yeah, to an extent. Yeah. When you talk about channel or broadcasting executives, he's kind of in that realm. Yes, he is. But, you know, the interesting thing is when you say suit or executive, usually those are people who are like, they don't have the passion, they don't have the creativity. But the truth is, when I was speaking with him, and when you hear this podcast, you'll realize that he truly had a passion for it, and that's where it came from. Uh, He gave up money, because being an engineer probably pays you a little bit more than what we get paid nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) But he gave that up, and he, he actually jumped onto a dream, or not even a dream, but just what he loved, which was films. So uh, that's an interesting one right there. And then you've got uh, Calvin Mock, your former boss, or who you're working for right now. Yes. I wouldn't say boss, but he's a producer that brings you on, and he brought you on to the Hong Kong shoot. Yep. Well, one of my early uh, jobs, you know, soon after my uh, short stint at uh, Fairchild TV, I was uh, brought in as a producer, and it was my first time producing, uh, being a producer at a place called China Syndrome, and that's where I met Kelvin Mock, and he was like the senior producer at the time. But yeah, he brought me, he taught me a lot of stuff, and even and now that every now and then he'll bring me on these jobs. Like last year, he, he sent me over to uh, uh, Ireland uh, to shoot a, a baby formula commercial. That was fantastic. That was we should talk about that someday. Right. And now he's got me here shooting the IBM commercial. Uh, and actually, on Monday, I'm flying over to Shanghai to help him with another one, which is uh, uh, a feminine product, <laughs> if you would believe it. <laughs> yeah, in Shanghai. Can you say what it is? Well, it's always. It's always, yeah. Uh, the director yeah. for that one is coming from uh, L.A. Uh, and the client's from Hong Kong, and I think the market is for China. So that could be an interesting mix there. And then finally, you talked to another director who was in Hong Kong at the time, and he was shooting a Pampers commercial, I believe, and you got a chance to sit down and, and chat with him. Yeah, he uh, is, uh, there was like a couple of productions going on. Pampers was one of them with IBM. He was brought in also by Kelvin, and uh, Porteus is his name, great guy. He, he was uh, in the next uh, hotel room <laughs> beside me. We bumped into each other in the elevator, we started talking, and he was gracious enough to, uh, to allow me to interview him and talk about his his uh, his uh, road to where he is now as a director and somehow getting roped into being a, a baby specialist. So, you know, Pampers keeps on coming back for more and he keeps on getting flown everywhere to shoot those uh, baby commercials and everything. Wow, that is cool that uh, a director has its as his niche, you know, specializes in baby products. Interesting. Yeah, and coming from South Africa, like you, you never, you would never imagine that. You would think it was coming from the States, you know, a bigger market and everything, but no, he's coming from South Africa. It's great. 
Cool. Okay, so you're off to Shanghai next. I'm off to Shanghai, yes, that's correct. With another adventure, <laughs> working yep. in the mainland. Not there. looking forward to it. Yeah, not looking forward to it, because I'm dying here in Hong Kong. Like, Hong Kong, in, what is, is it, July right now? July, yeah. end, end of oh, July. Man. It's got to be hot and is, It's like 34 degrees and humid as hell. And when I start telling people I'm going to Shanghai, they're like, enjoy the good weather here. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's 40 and humid over there. Oh, my gosh. And you're in a city, and oh. And you're in a city, yeah. And it's a lot of pollution. There's not a lot of uh, restrictions there in China right now. It's just a booming uh, economy, you know? Yeah, well, uh, have a great shoot and get back to us safe. Thank you very much. Looking forward to being back safe. <laughs> ah, good old Lomboyman. I'm very thankful that he's been able to take the time to do some of these interviews while he's working. I know it's long, long days on a commercial shoot and a lot of travel and hotel rooms and all of that, but I'm, I'm really glad. And I'm really excited about the interviews that he's lined up. In this episode, we're going to kick things off with Brian Lau. As I mentioned, he is the former Senior Vice President of Content and Communications for the Fox Networks Group, which I think is a fancy way of saying his job is to pick the stuff that goes on the movie channels. Now, Brian brings an interesting perspective since he spent a long, long, long time with the Fox organization. So he's able to reflect on that and offer some some great advice for those that are looking to navigate the world of a corporate broadcaster. Uh, Brian also talks about how he started out as a mechanical engineer. Yes, we have had some some odd academics, I guess, for some of our guests here. Where we have architecture, uh, accounting, and now mechanical engineer, which I thought engineer would be far, far removed from, let's say, uh, film and television, but Brian proves that it's not. Uh, He also shares his thoughts on how luck factors into your career, why it may not be advantageous to stick with one company for too long, and why being a jerk is a legitimate way to manage people. Very interesting. I did cross paths with Brian. I didn't think he was that big of a jerk. He was running Star Movies, which then turned into Fox Movies Premium. And as a producer, I was tasked with helping him to create a reality show. Basically, his channel had lost most of their on-air hosts. And uh, we decided to come up with a reality show to search for their next on-air host to do their movie show and some of their events. And, you know, in this interview, Brian talks a lot about uh, just looking for competent people. And I I guess I was competent enough. We did the show. I thought it was great. We all thought it was great. It was a lot of fun to put together. We had no money. (laughs) We had no budget. But uh, he was nice to me. He was nice to me during it and after it. In the beginning, there was a little bit, of course, I think he was feeling me out, as he talks about in the the interview, how he likes to feel people out. And that usually means he he pushes and he shoves at first. But anyways, uh, we ended up... uh, on pretty good terms, and uh, I was happy to do the show and how the show turned out. It was called Screen Test, Search for the Next, I I don't remember. Anyways, I'm going to put a link to the show in the show notes, so check it out. Uh, I think there are a couple of uh, classic funny moments. So anyways, here we go, uh, our interview with Brian Lau. I guess, you know, my path to ultimately what I ended up with my most recent position, I was uh, heading up acquisitions for... Hold on. This oh. is all good stuff. Yeah. I, got, I need this stuff. I don't, I don't want the second round. So I'm going to start from the beginning. There's a beginning? There's a beginning. Okay. Okay. So anyway, first off, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the header. Yeah, the header. I got to right. thank everybody for joining our podcast today. I have a very special guest. One of my closest friends in Hong Kong when I was here working at Fox International. But now one of your physically farthest. Physically farthest friend, that's right. Um, Brian Lau. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. I know you have a very busy schedule. No, I, I keep thinking of those SNL skits where the ladies on NPR, are, are, they kind of lead into the mic say, hey, thank you very much. But... Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Great. Um, so for, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that um, are listening to us that have no idea who you are. Can you maybe just introduce who you are and recently what you have been doing? Oh, they'll, they'll never know anything about who I am. <laughs> I'm pretty far away. 
But um, most recently, I was with, I don't even know what they're called anymore, but I guess most recently, Fox Network Groups. Uh, I was heading up their acquisitions department, both for their feature film channels and for their drama channels. And also, I ran their feature film channels, Fox Movies channels. Right. And we're in Hong Kong right now. The, the office was based in Hong Kong, but it wasn't just Hong Kong you were looking after. Yeah, it's a regional uh, network, so it covers all of Southeast Asia. Um, which around here would mean Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines. Yeah, yeah. quite a quite a big kind of area. Yeah, and you know, like expats, we just lump them all together into one group. But I think economically, it makes more sense to broadcast that way, and the right. content-wise, right, it makes sense. But yeah, they're all extremely different countries. And you've been with this company. I mean, the company has evolved from uh, before Fox, it was Star, yeah. Star TV, and everything. How long have you been with this company? Sixteen years. Sixteen years. Wow. Yeah, I don't recommend it um, to anybody. <laughs> uh, I mean, what don't I, you recommend? Being at a company for sixteen years, or being at this particular company? Oh, I'm not gonna disparage any particular company. I, I think in general, the and I, I would I would say that actually I was fortunate enough to have had many opportunities at Fox, which I guess we'll we'll talk about. Yeah. There and, and Fox is a certain particular corporate culture which lends itself to people who want to kind of do more, so to speak. Yeah. But um, I mean, I think in terms of remuneration, I think anybody would tell you never to stay in one place because essentially, I mean, and you'll figure this out over time. It's like you know when you get a raise, your annual raise is is going to be at best cost of living, right? And if you get a promotion, your promotions at best will be 10 to 20% if you're lucky. Right. You know, and then, and if you start at a low base, and I started a very junior role, you know, it's, you, you do the math and you can't have that many promotions. There just aren't that many levels to go through. And right. It's just a bad way to earn money. <laughs> you earn more money <laughs> by seeking out um, similar or better or better challenges elsewhere and then maybe coming back if you want to, but ideally you move on somewhere else. So the idea is you stay at a place long enough to gain the experience you need to gain, get the challenge you want to get, and then hopefully it opens up the doors to other challenges at other places where you can then take a jump up both in responsibility as well as, as pay. Right. So, I mean, in, in terms of this company, like, yes, I agree with you that, you know, going through just staying with this one company, monetary-wise, it doesn't make any sense. However, this company has evolved so much. It almost feels like in terms of experience-wise, even though you were sticking with this company for some long, or at least for me, I felt like I was changing jobs constantly. That, I think, was more of, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's, it was poorly managed. And so they weren't properly resourced uh, to the point where there were gaping holes. And, and I think, you know, with every, what, uh, how do you say, disaster that happens within a, a corporation, that also means there are opportunities for people to kind of jump in Absolutely, and, and yeah. fill the gap. So when people get laid off or departments get dissolved or business sort of all of a sudden changes 180 degrees or whatever, a lot of people get left out in the lurch. But then right. that means they're pivoting or that there are these holes that if you have luck and wherewithal and the right sort of uh, made, had made the right impression to management along the way, then you raise your hand and you say, hey, I'm willing to jump in there. Yeah. Even though your track record may not be as good as someone from the outside, but clearly they're not necessarily always willing to spend the money to bring in someone from outside, so you can kind of jump in there. And I think I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that in certain cases there. But again, that, as far as the remuneration point, that it, you lose out on that. So there are opportunities because you're the incumbent. They know you. They trust you. Even though you don't have the ideal background, you know, they may kind of give you the keys or right. at least try you out. The job you've done is remarkable, especially in a company like this. And there's a lot of stuff that we could talk into. But before we get into all that stuff, I want to take it all the way back to when you first kind of like wanted to get into this field. Because you have a very interesting route. And you were, we we're just talking before we started recording that it's, you'll be surprised that a lot of people have a very similar route to you in getting into this industry. Got to hope not. <laughs> well, let's start off with with your education. Did you study, you know, what you were you've been doing for the past what, the sixteen years? Yeah, no, not at all. I not mean, at all. The I mean, I graduated with an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering. And where did you study? At Berkeley. Berkeley. And then because it was what when did I graduate? Ninety two. There was a recession, so I was like, screw that. Stay in school. Graduated in ninety four. 
with a master's of engineering um, in mechanical engineering with a minor in air quality engineering and Asian American studies because you need a that, that master's degree means you have you know your main degree in mechanical and then you have a minor technical and a minor in humanities and I picked Asian American studies for my humanities so. ah that, everything sounds like the perfect concoction for the job that you've been doing yeah exactly. as a programming that was, that was a huge massive disappointment to my parents for the last 30 years <laughs> so you got the, you, you did all that stuff you came out I'm sure I'm totally serious I am <laughs> <laughs> don't worry so am I but you you did all that studies you 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 know with your masters and all stuff and you came out and you just uh, did you start looking for an engineering job yeah yeah I worked as a uh, environmental consultant for a couple of years okay and I really liked it until Republican Revolution, Newt Gingrich, uh, and uh, came into power and controlled the House. Yeah. And they basically deregulated uh, a, a lot of the industry. So they kind of gutted a lot of the EPA, or uh, really hindered the ability for the EPA to kind of have more stringent kind mm-hmm. of uh, air quality rules. And uh, and it really just wasn't enough work for me to do. And it was rule. Did you get laid off or something, or? No, but like they willingly let me kind of reduce my hours, which oh, is not good for a consultant. You know, because a consultant is supposed to be building hours, and I was like, eh, maybe I'll just take a day off a week. They're like, yeah, it's fine, no problem. I mean, like, because there wasn't enough work to kind of keep me around. So essentially, the writing was in the wall. You kind of knew it was coming if you well, stayed I mean, in that. You're sitting around, you're waiting for jobs to come in, and there's four or five of us there, and there wasn't a job so okay. it's kind of look you're paying me and I'm not doing anything and I, you, you sit there and you say oh you're, they're paying you not to do anything but they're kind of giving you a lot of pressure to do stuff and so I was being sent out of state a lot so from there I guess you eventually said okay I gotta find something else did you start looking for other engineering jobs or did you change course no I totally I well so when I was doing my uh, minor yeah. In university, I was doing Asian American studies, right? So I was taking all these courses, and one of the courses was Asian American media. And, you know, I get there and I'm like, wow, I had no idea there was this many sort of films and videos, and, and this stuff was being created uh, about basically, you know, the Asian American experience and Asian American identity, and I was just, just blown away. And they put on a film festival every year in San Francisco in March, the San Francisco International Asian American Film Festival, though I think it's called the CAMFest now. Okay. It's the Center for Asian American Media. And it was just really just, you know, you, when you sit down, I, I don't really sit down and with my fellow engineers and we just talk all the time about engineering. It's just not that you kind don't? of business. Shocking. Not unless we had a project. <laughs> but, you know, film and media, and I think this goes for not just you know studying film or whatever but like you you want to talk about the show you just watch whether it's you know even now whether it's like game of thrones or if it's homeland or whatever you just want to sit down and right. you want to talk about it right yeah. and particularly now it's sort, of, it's sort of like doubly positive that like you want to talk about these these films because it captures your experience and so i just you you, you have that light go on in your head when you experience this media and you go, wow, this is really moving me. Yeah. But how do I get involved? I had no idea how to kind of get involved. Like, so you you know you do the thing where you take video courses and film courses and stuff. And I realized very early on I'm a terrible filmmaker, and so that was never really going to happen. Okay. But at least I took enough to kind of understand the basics of lighting and what a what a steam back is, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I didn't actually cut on sixteen. So when I was working as an engineer and I said cut my hours I was like I'm going to cut my hours you know what I'm going to go and volunteer for these guys okay. like, I'll just do whatever I'll, I cleaned up their tape library for like four months and were then, you planning that this would be your your next route or you just wanted to do it because you wanted to be near film I had an extra day a week right and I needed to do something with it and I, I couldn't find a one day job to pay me or whatever so I wanted to go help out this nonprofit. Nonprofits, you know, they need people to mm-hmm. volunteer, right? So I just, I literally volunteered. And I did that for like, I don't know, six months or longer. Yeah. And then I sort of said, like, do you guys have anything? And they're like, well, we have a distribution associate role. So they had an educational video department, mm-hmm. basically renting or selling their video library of documentaries and other things to universities and museums around the world. Right. And they're like, yeah, we've got an associate role. If you want it, it, it pays you like two thirds of that of what you're currently getting. You know, you'd be lucky to get that. And I was like, 
that's where I'll take it, you know, because like there was that little keeping me engineering. If there was more work, yeah, I wouldn't have ever considered it. It's really because there was nothing for me to do. But the pay, I mean, you're still getting paid money though. Like you didn't wait till that dried up, just decide just to jump ship and make even less. I'm two years away from having lived in college with like no money so it was it wasn't that much of a transition to kind of go back to living with no money okay so you're sort of like used to it i don't know like you just give up your apartment you go room with somebody and you just do the whole thing and it was you know back then in san francisco in the 90s you could rent a place a big place for like a thousand and split it up amongst four people and you're spending 250 each san francisco that doesn't happen anymore now no it's it's like 10 times that now so it's like it's different you know back then it was really it was still a place where you know people could come together with nothing more than a suitcase and and try to do something creative right Right. now it's prohibitively expensive and and that's one of the big tragedies of, of the bay area it's just such a great communal creative space yeah crazy people with crazy ideas but it's just too expensive to live there and do that kind absolutely, of thing absolutely yeah. yeah I guess that's the point that's the moment where you, you moved on to this completely different job that you didn't study for and your parents disowned you uh, that was the first time the first of the many times I've disappointed them they're used to it now though I hope no they never get over they it. never get they over still it. <laughs> they still bring it up after 20 odd years okay so you were there you're doing this job that's paying you a lot less than you did before you but it wasn't decided- about the pay and I think that's sort of like the first point yeah we're, we're, we're going to be making in this conversation which you, know, you must have reflections of it in conversations with other people it's yeah. like you don't do media to get rich not unless you're just one of those magical producers or directors that just comes up with this great idea and makes this amazing show or film and just becomes the next so that's Iver, the illusion right? though right I mean because of Hollywood the illusion that a lot of people get outside of the industry is that oh you're in this media thing oh, it must be great it must be like you know you get money and, and you have fame and, and life is good but that's not the case maybe for the Instagram Snapchat crowd but literally anybody that even steps foot into a film school right or a communications department, or does an internship at a, at a at a network or whatever. I mean, you realize very quickly these people aren't rich, right? And there is no quick path to being wealthy if you're just one of the cogs in the machine. Right. I, I don't know anybody that's dumb enough to sort of like think that once they've actually had some exposure to how how the cake is made, right? Right, right, So once you realize how the cake... Sure, if you're reading all the magazines and you see, you know, okay, so back in our day, it was, it was what, Tarantino and, you know, that whole indie Sundance, you know, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, you know, anybody with with a handy cam can kind of make it big, that kind of thing, right? Right. But even then you realize, I mean, you, you just quickly go through the catalogs and you see how many films have gone through Sundance and what their actual box offices are and yeah. kind of who came out of that. I mean, sure, Soderbergh is still Soderbergh, yeah. but th- there's so many people who have made amazing films and never done anything, right? Right, right, that's true. You know, and then TV was horrible back then. I mean, how many people are still working from that back then? So it's like, nobody does this business to get rich. So my point was that, yeah, you know, it wasn't about the fact that I wasn't making any money. It was uh, the money was just okay. Do I have enough to eat? Yeah, I had no savings. But going to work every day, being with you know other people that passionate about film and particularly like ethnic media, yeah, was the thing that was making me wake up every day. Wow, talking okay. about that every day, every night. I mean, you had a community that was dragging me to Hong Kong movies at Chinatown at like midnight. I mean, I'd never experienced that before, right? The midnight the midnight show of, you know, the latest Hong Kong movie in Chinatown, right? Yeah, yeah. That's Because that's a big thing in Hong Kong, right? Back in the days, in the 90s, in the heyday of the film, you would go see a midnight show. Yeah. That had translated over to Chinatown. And we had a dude, that Kevin, who just was a huge, passionate fan for Hong Kong cinema. And he said, dude, we got to go. We go see a movie. And, and we would just go see, like, if not a midnight, just a regular show. And it was just mind-blowing to see that kind of film coming out of that region. Right. At that time. Uh-huh. And then, you know, other friends, We this is the in the indie movie kind of explosion where... You know, we would go see a film or a documentary maybe three times a week. Okay. You know, so we were consuming as much as possible. Now it's so much easier because you guys have like 
Netflix yeah, and it's all, all these other sort of touch streaming of streaming services. But you know, there's still something about being able to experience this kind of within a theater. Yeah, isn't with it? Other people. Don't you feel like it was, it was a little more magical back then, where you had to go? It made it more special. Well, it was more rare. Yeah. You know, this this stuff isn't quite as commonplace as it appears to be today. Yeah. I mean, now you have filmic quality television. Yeah. You didn't have that back in the day. So then, independent. Film was such a, an eye-opening. Oh, let alone foreign film was such an eye-opening experience relative to what we were consuming on uh, and through mainstream theaters or television. Or I mean, cable wasn't even like a thing back then. So right. So how long were you, were you with this nonprofit organization? Uh, I was with them four years. Four years. Okay. Yeah. And okay. so I started off as a distribution associate, but then they gave me a chance to kind of program a a, a monthly kind of like summer fall showcase at the uh, Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. So that's how you kind of started into this whole programming. programming. Yeah, and wow. I realized, like, you know, I really like exhibiting and, yeah. and just sort of, like, trying to introduce uh, a piece to an audience and then kind of trying to create a dialogue. So we, like, by half the time, we would invite the filmmaker to come and, and do a Q&A afterwards. And it was always really amazing to kind of, like, talk with the filmmaker and try to connect the audiences and, and just get that kind of vibe. So... I always really enjoyed that. So from there, is this where you started doing all the festivals that I've heard about in the past? Uh, no, no. I mean, after the program in Yerbuena, the festival directors had left, and there was an opening, and so then, <laughs> you know, it's back to our you know, the thing that we were talking about before is you raise your hand, yeah, and you say, "Hey, I'll do it," and they're kind of like, "Well, we don't have anybody else, so hey, sure, you go ahead and try." Right. There was no competition back then? Was it easier back then? Or, or It's hard to find festival directors. Really? Okay. So, I mean, particularly those who have a background in that particular media. So Yeah. So where did you go from there? Well, I, I love doing that. I did that for a couple of years, running their film festival. And, and that was really interesting in terms of just like, okay, you raise your hand and go, oh, I like to program films. But it's, of course, you realize it's way more than that versus managing a team, producing the catalog, which back then... You know, it's not something you just type out on your computer. It's, right. It's a lot. So well, how did you get this experience or this knowledge you do? Because you just started just as... <laughs> I mean, your, your training was engineering. I mean, how did that even translate to this? It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. But the programming part, you know, being literate with the product... I mean, that organization at that time, it was the National Asian American Telecommunications Association. There were so many amazing people there. And you just learn so much right. from what they have. And then that gives you the, the desire to kind of to dive further in and learn even more. Right. You're exposed to filmmakers, you're exposed to curators, you're exposed to producers. My buddy Don, you know, he's, he's, he's a great producer, documentary producer. And he taught me so much about like light and sound and editing and things like that. It just really opened my eyes to like how films can, you know, transmit the message either consciously or subconsciously of what they're trying to say. And you know, that environment kind of accelerates your learning about yeah. the product. The stuff about like producing a catalog, creating getting getting sponsorship, designing websites, stuff like that, that's just practical knowledge. It's a big enough community where you can try to find people that have done that work, bring them in, pitch them your mission, and they will try to help you, right? So people do a lot of favors. You pay part, other parts favor, and try to help you put that stuff together. Right. The real knowledge is, is, is of the film and being able to relate to the filmmakers, and, and that was really because you get to be in such a rarefied space that you, you kind of pick that stuff up. Yeah. But the practical knowledge of, of putting a festival together, it's like putting an event together and it's just logic and luck and really good people, you know, that are working with you or volunteering with you and put it together. And you make tons of mistakes. I'm sure we could have raised way more money than we did, but we right. didn't know any better. Right. You know, because our sponsor, myself and my sponsorship person were pretty green, <laughs> you know, but... So, okay. So after this, you, you've gone through that. At some point in time, you have to... You got. You have to worry about money, right? Because right now you're making enough to survive, but you have to. No, never did. So like, what <laughs> happened was like, I ended up going out with somebody, and they, they ended up so magically sort of got a gig with a famous director here in Hong Kong, and they said that oh, I want to go move to Hong Kong and go work there. I was like, sure, I'll come along. That's <laughs> how you came. came over here. Yeah, but prior to that, I mean, I would come to Hong Kong to you know go to the Hong Kong International Film Festival and. and 
and look at some of the they, they, they have a really good Asian film program and so I would look at stuff to bring over for the for our festival so you have been to Hong Kong I came in 97 98 99 yeah okay. uh, so I had a tourist view of Hong Kong but right. like you know a strong kind of emotional connection to it yeah from my family background as well as like the inordinate number of hours of Hong Kong films that we were consuming right anyways and so maybe not a realistic vision of what it, Hong Kong was knowing what I know now but so you had enough for you to go okay it won't be so bad to move here yeah I could yeah you could say that. <laughs> I mean because I'm not super fluent in Cantonese so I'm kind of an idiot for not but Hong Kong's one of those places where if you can deal with the, the density of people and the small physical spaces once you get over that because some people can't like my cousin hates it yeah yeah once you get over that it's the one of the most vibrant sort of energetic places you could ever possibly be oh yeah it's, a, it's an amazing city it's a great place for business I still believe Cantonese people are the most practical people in the world they just there's something in their DNA that just gets it done maybe they'll grumble along the way but they really are doers and and not the, and you just Things just progress. Okay, you know, and it's just a really interesting place to work. So what? So moving into Hong Kong, you were here, and I mean, you've been here ever since. How did the first early few years treat you, and what did you do? The city survive? or work-wise? Work-wise. Work. Well, I mean, I had to work, right? So, Fox slash Star was my first and only job in Hong Kong. Right. That Okay. So the beginning was it was Star uh, Star TV. Yeah, and I, I joined as a publicity what senior publicity executive in the movies group and I wrote highlights and press releases and all that kind of stuff, right? Just basic sort of background material that gets sent out to affiliates or publications so that they can promote our, our, our movie listings and stuff like that. So real basic stuff. But I, I was just glad to get a job that I could do. I mean... Was it difficult for you to find that job here? Uh, I mean, it's junior. It was a junior job. So right. it took probably about three months after getting here it was right. not too bad I mean in retrospect it seemed terrible because it was hard to find a job because if you don't speak Chinese or read and write Chinese it's obviously it's a very limited market right so so wait uh, the, the stuff that you did that, that you're uh, you know doing the publicity it was for, all in English it was all English yeah. so it was American films coming to Hong Kong or? yeah because the movies channel is all Hollywood features ah okay that's interesting because you were when you were in, in uh, North America you were doing all the you know the Asian, Asian and films. Asian American films, but still, it was all in English. I mean, like we did all writing in English, but yeah, it's but I mean, having been American for pretty much most of my life, <laughs> uh, you, you naturally have you know knowledge of, yeah, of the products, and you already and, like film anyway. It's not like you don't watch that stuff. Yeah, and so you're in a sort of natural advantage to a local population that may not have had as much exposure to that product, right? Because they're not going to get every single film. Out here, there's fewer English language channels in Hong Kong, so you, you have an advantage of having seen most of the right. catalog right off the bat um, and being able to you know talk about it kind of naturally. Uh, so it, it, obviously, that's my one advantage for for that job. So how did you progress throughout this? Like eventually, you moved your way up to you know the the position you were at before you. It, I mean, the short of it is it's the same as talking about, you know, uh, eventually running the film festival is that you, there was an opening and you kind of raise your hand. And so at, the, at this time, they were looking to transition the, the programming manager for the Southeast Asia feed out. And um, I, I spoke to the hiring manager. And I was like, I would like to try, mm -hmm. you know, and I think... And then prior to that point, I had made enough of an impression, maybe not the greatest impression, but enough of an impression for, for her to say, okay, well, why don't you do your old job and this at the same time? I was like, I'm dumb enough to say, yeah, let's do it, <laughs> right? Because I didn't know anything. So then yeah. you just kind of muddle your way through it and you do a half decent job and then you do it long enough and you say, hey, can I transition fully out? And they're like, sure, go do it. And then they gave me enough room to kind of learn. But I think, you know, it's, you're lucked into a situation where there's not enough... Um, the manager on top of you is a combination of being nice enough to to help you learn as well as not being so knowledgeable about exactly what you're doing to micromanage you the whole way right and so I'm lucky enough to get a, a good manager that way right so some people some managers like they know what's going on below them so well that if you're not doing exactly what they want then they just 
destroy you, right? Right. But she came from another department to kind of head up this department, so she understood the channel kind of holistically, yep. but not necessarily, okay, you need to put this movie here, this movie there, this movie there. And so she was learning along the way how to do that as well, right? So we would work together to kind of break down the channel, analyze, okay, ratings-wise, how is this pro how's this doing, how's this doing, understand the demographics of the different countries that we're working And we did this together, so we're learning this kind of together, yep. which was great for me and I guess great for her because she was understanding the business mm -hmm. I'm understanding what she wants out of the business and so I'm taking the data taking what her conclusions are and I'm just sort of producing conditions that will get that data you know in the way that she wants it right so right. if she says action movies are doing well this is what the data looks like then look we're programming a lot more action movies right we're gonna go out and we're gonna go acquire more action movies it's simple things like that so it that was luck you know if, if it was different and that manager at that time had been there forever and they know ups and downs and she looks at you and you're an idiot and I'm like oh yeah I'm an idiot and then she probably would have dumped me after six months right so it, it was just luck so much of what happens is luck it's true though yeah it is it I is mean, you have to be there and you have to raise your hand for it and right. you have to have enough wherewithal to kind of model your way through it and but a lot of the opportunity is luck a lot of staying there is what you got inside. Yeah. Right? And yeah. There's no necessarily training for that. It's a bit of a survival, a bit of, a bit of, you know, being smart about it. Right. You know, arrogant when you need to, humble when you need to. But the opportunity itself, for me, seems like it's always luck. Well, luck happens, but... I mean, sure, you put yourself in position for it. Right. But that may never always... It, you can put yourself in position all day and it, that opportunity may never come because you just happen to be in the wrong department. Right. Well, if luck happens for everybody, at the end of the day, you still need to be ready for when the luck comes, right? If you're not ready and the luck comes, it'll just pass you. True. Right? So but you have to be prepared. I think willing if you're not happens. always ready, then you're kind of dumb. You should always <laughs> be ready, right? Dumb or lazy, yeah. Yeah. And But the other thing for me, and this is sort of like... Both a plus and a negative is that I never really had a strong vision of what I wanted to do. Right? Except you just enjoyed what you were doing and you just kept on going. Sure. I, I enjoy the medium I work in, right? right? I enjoy film and television. And, and in this case, though previously it was Asian American and Asian and Asian uh, product, in this case here it's Hollywood product. I mean, I like both. Right. Really, I, I like going to the movies, I like renting videos, I like watching TV, and I liked working with it. Now, if you were to ask me, did you? specifically Hindi language films I don't enjoy that product as much right. and it would be much harder for me to stay in that environment right? right so I had incentive enough to keep progressing in what I understood about the business because I like, I like the product I was working with right? right I can totally understand if you just hate editing and you're stuck as an editor it's difficult to move right. because you just don't enjoy going to work every day if you love editing and you work with a great director or producer or whatever, and they see your ideas, and you see now and then some editors get a shot at actually producing their own yeah. pieces, right? Yeah. But I would bet 10 to 1 that these guys have great ideas when they're in the suite, Yeah. right? These guys just have like out of the world, like, you know, we put this way, or they, the director or producer comes back the next day and the editor lays out the cut that they did overnight, and then the director goes, holy crap, that's amazing, right? Yeah. These guys have that thing, right? But they gotta love... What they do. If you just hate sitting in that suite 18 hours a day, yeah. you know, putting that stuff together for the jerk that's telling you to cut it this way when you know it should be cut a different way, then you're never gonna get that opportunity with, in, in that environment, right? Right. So, I mean, uh, me being a producer and a director, you know, I love what I do to a certain extent, but there are times where I'm just like, oh man, I don't know if I can handle it. Yeah, but that happens way. everywhere. Yeah. So, so you gotta love the overall. Right, so for you, I mean, what I get so far up until now in your career, you've loved what you've been doing. But has there ever been times where you're like, okay, you know, you question your, your judgment, your, your life choice of, of this career and you want to go somewhere else or you want to try something different? Mm, no. I mean, only in the sense that I never really had a lot of clarity as to what my career could be going forward. Right. So, okay, say, okay, great. So now I'm programming a television channel. What should I be doing in five to ten years? I have no idea. Where should I be working? I, uh, another station somewhere? Like yeah. another network somewhere? I mean, I, even to this day, I really don't have a really good idea of what my career 
future should be, right? And so that was always very difficult, right? That that's one sort of negative because uh, I don't I don't know how to really look forward. So you're in your job and you have a bad day, or you're you you have a bad management team, and I didn't really have a lot of options, right. really, because I. I guess I could pick up and try my luck somewhere else. Right. But the way I think of it is that I really don't think anywhere is any better than where you are now. I, I think there are bad management teams wherever you go. Right. You're lucky to get into a corporate culture that is remotely positive and encourages you to kind of stretch beyond your potential, right? Right. And I, I think. It happens on a much smaller scale. You may jump into a team or a department that actually is doing good work and they're encouraging people. But I think generally all major corporations are really terrible. Right. And even if yours is terrible, there's no guarantee that you'll jump into another one that's any better. Yeah. So it's like that. So I never really like going back to your original questions. Like, did I have you know moments of doubt and things like that? It really comes down to okay, well, where could I go? I need money. You know. I still like the actual product. I yeah. just don't like the people I'm working with. Right. So it's like if something comes up and great, and you know, put a few feelers out and ask around. But if nothing pops up, then you just put your head down and keep working. Right. Fortunately for me, that I've gone through at least four or five cycles of management, which means that's a lot of management to go through. It was a very chaotic business, <laughs> and so like you know, like each time management takes over there may or may not be an opportunity to do something and in most cases there were right you know and I'm not saying every team was bad there's some good teams that got tossed out because of stuff that happens above my head right but if it taught me anything is like you don't want to get promoted too high because then <laughs> you get your head up higher and higher and higher also just gets chopped off by the axe there's certainly an axe that's constantly swinging it about the like a low vice, ceiling fan that's always senior the- vice president level there's just an axe that just comes around every <laughs> 720 days and just chops off whatever heads up there and it's I, I guess that's the way the world works it's all about money at the end of the day right yeah right. well I, I, I split things up like Work environment, career path, and money for me are all a little different. Okay. You know, because like money really comes down to leverage. Okay, leverage. If you can put yourself in a situation where you're indispensable enough to ask for dramatically more money, then that's your leverage. Right. If you're always replaceable, (laughs) then you have no leverage. Right. It really comes down to that. Right. Right. And, you know, not every opportunity you can ask for something, but there have been times where you ask for it and your leverage, either positive or negative, you know, negative meaning like you threaten someone into it, positive meaning like, hey, you know, I've been doing so much work and good work and, you know, I need this bump and your manager's nice enough to get it for you. Right. You know, so like you have to always be working for that. I mean, and that's what. So how do you become indispensable? You do the things people ask you to do and you do more than they ask you to do and you do it better than someone else that can do it and that, that sort of thing that's it's easy rah-rah language yeah you know but it's true you know when when I was managing a team it's like you try to promote or reward those that are helping you as a department and you as a manager the most right whether or not the people below them think they're kissing ass or whatever it doesn't matter and it's, it sucks to read it that way but it's true because if but if you look at that person and that person is doing better work or doing what you need to have done, then you have to reward that person. Yeah. It's just true. And if that person is shitty to everything people below them, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you try to talk to them about not being shitty, but then the fact of the matter is that that the work product or the result coming out of that person is still superior or is necessary for you. Yeah. You still reward that person. Yeah, you Let's let's go into this whole team thing. You've always had a team under you. Actually, no. It, the whole thing about Fox was was it's, it's been really good to me in the sense that like I started, I was lone wolf for God knows how long, at least three four years, and then they sort of stuck someone under me, and then they stuck two people under me as as, as you get more responsibility, right? And I was really resistant to it. I kind of just wanted my little cave program and acquired from my little cave. And so they're like, no, you need to do this and you need to do that. And, uh, okay. 
But and then they stuck more and more and more people under me, and eventually it's up to like twenty six, twenty seven. That was so. the, that's the largest the team has gotten. I think so. When it, you add the channel and the acquisition folk and the digital the right. ads people, but you must be doing something right for them to put all those people underneath you. I don't know. That could be argued. But, you know, <laughs> hey, you just, know the reality. Just because managers have a lot of people under them doesn't necessarily mean they're good managers. Okay. Well, the funny thing is when I first was introduced to you, I was told that oh, this guy's an asshole. Yeah, he doesn't care about but anybody I, else. But all that's this stuff. true, though. You know that you know. Well, that, I don't it, know. That is an intentional persona that you adopt in that I. I mean, I am a jerk, but I'm trying to be a funny jerk, right? But the world this, loves jerks. That's no, reality. People will step on you, right? Yeah. If you don't draw your moat and fire your arrows from the towers, people will step on you. You know what? I just it's realized true. now. I just realized right now at this moment why like I was always wondering like the guy's a jerk well that's what people tell me like I, I'm a, like you're one of my best friends right but in the beginning before I knew who you were everybody said you were a jerk I'm like okay this guy's an asshole but then I realized that as I got to know you and I also got to know your team I realized that because in Fox there's many teams mm -hmm. right many many managers like you including myself but out of all the teams I talked to your team loved you as a boss and that wasn't the case for a lot of other other guys out there right and the reasons for that so i always wonder how can an asshole be such such a well-loved boss now i just realized because you built a moat you started firing arrows and anybody that's in your team is within that moat and they're safe yeah well that's the idea it's like i'm more loyal to my team than external parties right except obviously the management levels above me right we have to do what they say and yeah you do it to the best of your ability but like other teams unless they're helping you they're not help, they're hurting you right yeah okay true and so but I was very friendly with certain peers right yeah and because they help us yeah right? certain teams help, but certain teams do not help you <laughs> there's like allies and stuff like that but it's true I mean it's, it's a large-ish company and that's right what, you can't be friends with everybody because everybody's not friends with you yeah true and Granted, my first foot would always be a bit more on the argumentative, aggressive side. Yeah. Because I'm just feeling you out. Right. I want to see where you are. Are you? Ninety-nine percent of the time, someone's bullshitting you. Right. Yeah. It's just a fact, internally or externally. Right. And I just don't have time for that. Okay. Let's talk about your team, because at your t during your time when I was there as well, I noticed that you have a very good team. Right. Now it's not just luck that you keep on hiring the right people. It's also because of the way you've kind of brought them up and everything. Uh, I didn't even get a chance to hire everybody. I think I hired maybe half, if that. Um, you know, I think you know, I value competency the most. Yep. So I don't pick people necessarily because I like them or I pick them because they're... Some people pick them because they're good looking. I don't even get that opportunity. It's just, look... If I know you do good work and you just get down to business, then I really would like you to be part of the team. Right. At least for the people that I had the opportunity to select, mm -hmm. I think that was true. Right. And certainly for the people that I picked that way, they brought people in like that. Right. And so it creates this kind of do-it culture. We weren't the most talkative or friendly team in that sense. Yeah. Not, I shouldn't say friendly. Friendly is a bad word for that because... At that time, it was certainly, I think the general manager culture wanted to be very open and they wanted this very open, communicative kind of environment amongst right. all departments, right? Okay, yeah, that's true. And But prior to that, we were all very segmented in, 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 in departments. And right. Each department took care of its department and just didn't give a rat's ass about any other department, right? Right. And so when you break all the barriers down and then you force people to kind of deal with each other, then I, I get why you need to be open and, and, and free, right? But on top of that, they wanted this sort of weird company rah-rah thing, which I don't agree with. Because uh, I think that respect needs to be earned. And I don't think necessarily you can just demand that kind of participation right off the bat. While your bosses were demanding that kind of environment, you disagree with how did you survive there or how did you kind of work around that? Because our solution to that is just to get the job done. We were more competent than any other team. So no matter how you so disagreed even, with they it. They never liked it. They never liked the fact that we never were very rah-rah. Yeah. 
but they couldn't dispute the fact that our group was the number one revenue generator of the department of, of the of the division. We talked about you managing the people outside, but what about the management of inside? How did you manage? Because in especially in Hong Kong, where you're doing something where you're dealing with a lot of different staff members from all walks of life, what is it like? How is it? What are the challenges of you managing these people and helping them grow as individuals in your team? I mean, this is really for people who are kind of getting into something like that and find themselves in a situation of being in your team. Well, I'll give you the two opposite opposing answers, right? Okay. So, from a managing manager's perspective, yeah, uh, you try to give people the opportunity. Again, I got to give Fox credit for for wanting to create a, a situation where everybody pitches in, everybody is able to do anything, right? It's it's a bit too fluid. I think there wasn't enough structure provided because I mean, we can go in and, and, and discuss like like how their approach to that was ultimately counterproductive because they wanted to say that the lowest guy in the totem pole can give an idea and that can appear on air and that person can have a pathway to success, right? Right. So if the, the guy on the bottom of the department comes up with this great idea and all of a sudden that's going to lead to, you know, it gives you the million dollar idea and that person is on a, on a rocket to success, right? Right. That's totally not true. <laughs> and, so how do you see it? And don't believe that when anybody ever tells you that. <laughs> Maybe it works in like, you know, in a company like just developing an app or whatever, but I would say if that if you got that idea, get out of that company and go develop the app yourself. <laughs> because ultimately, like, there are established processes for again back to the thing about money raises and promotions yeah right no one gets that 150 percent raise yeah it just doesn't happen there right. is no mechanism for that to happen but when the management team gives this spiel about how okay we want to be really flat right anybody can say anything and every idea is valid and and we want people to pitch in because they will be rewarded right it's that last part we want everybody to pitch in because they will be rewarded. That is the biggest lie. Right. Because, because that lie is... There the is no structure that exists that gives that person an adequate reward for pitching in. This, if this kid works 120 hours a week, has the greatest ideas possible, you're not going to make him vice president overnight. But that's what that discussion... Right. Or that's what that rhetoric leads you to believe, right? Right. Okay, so there's that. <clears throat> it's motivation. That's their form of motivation, How which is a big lie. It's the worst lie. So what's your motivation then? So our motivation was to work within the structure of everybody has an opportunity to do more, right? Right. And so we tried, <laughs> we tried and what we found was really interesting is we tried to allow everybody, maybe in sequence, maybe in groups or whatever, to do more. Do more means not just do more work, but to do work outside of what they normally do or to start managing people, right? Right. And so you go, oh, that'd be amazing. You know, you're giving people opportunities because we wanted to test them out. If that worked out, we wanted to find ways to promote them. Right. right. Because the biggest challenge for that company was we were doing more and more work, but there weren't enough people to manage the projects. Okay. Right? And yeah. I don't know if you felt that way or not, but like we wanted to do more. But everybody was still stuck at these junior and mid-levels, and we didn't have enough directors to kind of manage more complex projects. Right. right. So how did you nurture people to become it that It didn't thing? work. Because, <laughs> it didn't work. Because what we found is we gave people opportunity to be responsible, but people didn't want to be responsible. And it was this weird situation where they felt that they weren't being adequately rewarded for taking on more, more responsibility, and that's the situation with the pay structure. And they also didn't want to get blamed if it went down. So it was really so they're living in fear then. They everybody wants more money. Nobody wants more responsibility. Does okay. that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah. From a regular everyday Joe worker perspective, that's actually what they want, and I get that. You know? Right. It, it makes sense. I want more money. But I don't want to be even more on the hook for something goes bad. Right. I can do more work up to what I'm physically able to do or physically want to do. But I don't want to take the risk. But I don't want no more risk. And that was across the board. It was amazing. It's amazing. Because it's just the opposite of what you hear people say all the time. It's like, I could do so much more. Give it to me. Give it to <laughs> yeah. me. But it's totally not true. And I don't know if this was particular to our team or what, but that was what we found. 
So, but the cases where it did work out well, and there was a handful of people, it did. It worked out beautifully, and I had some extremely good managers below me that managed the entire team. So the way, back to the original question, the way I manage is that I, you can't manage everybody. It's just too big. Even for me, for 27, it's too big for me to okay. know what every single person is doing. So you rely upon your group managers below you, the people that manage, like maybe just the promo producers, the people that manage programming or the operation of the channel, and the people that manage the acquisition, to, to manage the people below them. Right. And you manage the people below you. Right directly below you and you're not in the most junior person's face like every day yeah now if you were to come across uh, you know a young guy coming in and or young girl coming in that's eager to kind of move up the ranks and uh, you know get to us get to a state where eventually becoming someone like you what kind of advice would you give them because it's interesting how you say like you know it, it won't be a paying job <laughs> okay the person has passion that beyond the money and they want to get up there what is it that you would let them know? Like, okay, well, if you want to, this is what you have to do, or this is what you should not do. The people I have seen be successful, whether in media or not in media, I mean, certainly they have a passion for what they're doing. Yeah. It's not relative to whether they're good people or bad people or nice people or evil people. I mean, they just really liked what they were doing. They either liked the product, they liked the company, or they liked the exact work that they were doing, right? So it's one of those very interesting things, you say that. They just liked these things, right? right. And it doesn't matter whether it's a, a, a company that makes needles or if it's a company that makes televisions yeah. or if it's, you know, whatever. They just had passion for it because that allows you to stick through the bad times, hopefully puts you in position for when the opportunities come. Second thing is jump into those opportunities. Right. You got to, and it's, there's no single way of identifying what those are. Right. You just have to kind of gut it out and like, right, okay, this is my chance. You know, I'm going to take this chance. Sometimes you can't do that chance. Sometimes you get a mortgage and you got two kids and a wife or whatever, and, and that's that. Right. But sometimes there is a chance. I mean, yeah. even though you have a wife and a mortgage, you discuss it with your partner and you go, you know, I'm going to go for this job. You know, it, it it's maybe 20% less in pay, but... You know, it, it puts us in the city that we want to be in, and, and you figure out all the different reasons why it's a good idea. Yeah. And then you do it, and you make the most of it. You make it a good idea, right? right. You don't just say, you don't just get there and you go, ah, oh, okay, it's done. No, you, you need, now you do all the work. It's like having a kid. You think like, okay, I'm not the, I'm not the wife, so I can't say <laughs> definitively, but like. When you have a kid, it seems like giving birth is like the, the hardest part of it. Oh man, that is the easiest part relative to raising the child. The rest of the life kind the of raising the yeah. child is the worst part of it. Like that is where all the time and the money and the heartache and the thing happen, right? Once you get that gig, you gotta double down and, and do well in that gig too. And then of course if you want to do well, you really need to have the passion or else you won't really be able to gut it out. Have the passion, be competent. I mean we know lots of people that have passion and and strutted around like they're the big dick on campus and they were not competent whatsoever. Right. And so, but you know, hopefully you're not that guy. But, <laughs> but, but those guys, I've seen those guys get good jobs too, but yeah. I don't see those guys getting good jobs for long periods of time. That's actually very important. Those are, those are people that have really good interviewing skills, which is a whole other yeah. topic. You know? you know, this actually brings it back right to the beginning of this whole interview, which is where you're talking about you being successful throughout your career because of a lot of luck. At the end of the day, you have the passion to kind of capture that luck when it came. That's yeah, all it is. For sure. The opportunity is luck. Yeah. Because you can't predict when someone's going to get fired or the company makes a turn or, or merges or some other person comes across, hey, I got this job you'll be great for. I mean, you can't predict when that's going to happen. Right. That, that stuff hopefully will happen frequently for you. And I, I pray that it does. Right. But you can't say it's going to come with any regularity. So you just have to... Hopefully, enjoy what you're doing enough to kind of wait around until, or make those situations happen for you yeah. by going out, and networking, and talking to people. And the more people you know, the more opportunities come. It's just, it's just a simple fact. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you don't talk to people in, in your industry at your peer level, or hopefully above your peer level, then you're not going to hear of anything that happens. Yeah. Right. And, and you, have to, you have to be aware. You have, you have to, to be get out there, out there. Join your industry groups. Join communities with like interests in your business sector. I mean, you got to do all that kind yeah. of stuff. But at the end of the day, it, it's hard unless you love what you're doing. Totally. Right? Totally. But not... You know what, though? The thing is that most people don't love what they're doing. 
I yeah. think all, all you folk in the creative businesses, I mean, yeah, you, you guys do love what you're doing. I mean, to I was a certain extent. fortunate enough to love the product of what I'm doing. But think about, like, you know, a lot of people working in the finance industry. How many people really love it? They love the money. They love the money. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on this podcast. I've no, learned good. a lot, actually. I, I, I hope somebody gets some benefit out of it. I don't know if they will. But. Well, I'm sure they will. I'm sure though. I, I have. I mean, I've known you for this long. We've been really good friends. Yeah. I, it really sucks that I'm on the other side of the world. But even now, just listening to this, I'm inspired. I kind of have a clear kind of vision of what I should be doing. Really? This. Oh, yeah, absolutely. God. I think your clients are calling you. <laughs> clients are calling All right, there you have it. Brian Lau talking about how he became the vice president of content and communications for the Fox Networks Group in Hong Kong. And wow, I, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to work for a big broadcaster or a big corporation again, but if I do, I think I'm going to have a different perspective now thanks to what I've learned from Brian. Like, I would approach it completely different now. So thanks to Brian uh, for being on the show, and thanks to you for tuning in and listening. Hey, if you can take a moment, head over to the iTunes store, search for us, rate, review us, it all helps, and visit Canada Video Companies. .ca if you want to get your production company listed. And don't forget to visit videotwins.com for video production, hacks and resources and tools and tips on how to make better videos. All right, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Dean Rainey, and I'll see you next time on How I Got This Gig. Mm-hmm.